Well, hey, we are here in uh, week four of our series, Relationship Goals, and we are uh, jumping into uh, what has been hopefully a really helpful conversation for all of you uh, over the last couple weeks. And what we've said from the beginning is that we all have goals for things that are uh, really, really important for us. You have goals for your careers, for your finances, uh, for all the things that you feel like you have uh, some sort of control over or or say in. And we said we want to challenge you to have goals about the things in your life that should matter most, and that's your relationships. Uh, the amount of work we put into growing our income is what w- the amount of work we should, if not more, that we should put into our, our relationships. And so uh, as we jumped into this series, we started talking about singleness and how really it's not this idea that maybe we've understood it to be, but it's this um, set-apart season that God has given to some for a period of time and some for their whole lifetime um, to not be alone, but to be uh, free from a romantic relationship for the purpose of being uh, solely devoted to God's purposes and the things that he is calling them to do. Basically, Paul said uh, they are free to serve the God, free from free to serve God, free of distraction, right? And not that your spouses are a distraction, but they divide your attention. So that was uh, week one. And we said, really, those are for a purpose and a season that God will call you to do that. Then in week two, David talked about dating because the reality is we don't all stay single. Many will date. And there's a, a way in which scriptures have called us to do that. There's some parameters if we're a follower of Jesus and who we're to choose, right? They need to be also a follower of God. They probably should have a life-giving relationship with Jesus. There's some things that ought to be true about them. They should be hardworking. They should be all of these things. And what's interesting is I was sitting there listening to David preach last week. I was thinking, I knew all of that, and yet I didn't make any of those choices when I was dating in high school, right? Like, I knew that was wrong, but if I think about the girls I dated, like, they didn't fall into that category, and I realized that sometimes I'm still like my one-and-a-half-year-old who just has to learn things the hard way, right? And, and glory be to God that he has grace for us in that, uh, that no matter where we've been, no matter what relationships we've run to, Jesus still wants us, and he has a bright future uh, for us. So that was weeks one and two, which leads us to the obvious week three, which is marriage. All right, so we're going to talk about marriage today and what perhaps your relationship goals for marriage will be. And I just want to address the elephant in the room for me as I'm getting up to preach on marriage. You know, there's this thing when you preach on marriage where all of a sudden your marriage comes under the microscope. All of a sudden your marriage comes under fire. And so here's what I'm not doing today. I'm not standing up here saying I have marriage figured out. I'm not standing up here saying my marriage is the exemplary marriage that you should all look up to. I would be a fool to do so, all right? I'm also not saying I have this all figured out, and I'm also not saying the things that I'm going to challenge us with are things that I'm walking out perfectly. But here's, here's what I am doing. I want to read to you what Paul says in Philippians. Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. We'll stay up there on that verse. Here's what Paul is saying. He says, I'm not there yet. I know I'm not there yet, but I see this goal out there. And this goal is what I want for uh, my future. The goal is to have the marriage that Jesus died for me to have. And so I press on towards that. I'm not there yet. And so I want to challenge all of us today to sit in a posture of humility before God's word. That we would all say, no matter we've been in marriage for two years or 200 years, which some of you may feel like it's been 200 years, all right? But that we would all say, okay, what does the word of God say? Because Paul says he wasn't perfect yet. What can I learn? What can I uh, take from the word of God and apply to uh, my life? And so that's what we want to do this morning. I just wanted to 
just frame it and be honest with you this morning that I know I do not have this all figured out, but I'm striving for this, and I hope you strive for this too. So if I were to ask you this morning, what is the goal of your marriage, could you tell me? Maybe you're here and you're not married yet. You probably have some ideas about what marriage could look like or should look like. Could you tell me kind of your expectations of marriage? Maybe you're here and you are married and you may or may not be able to answer the question, what is the goal of your marriage? And if you could, the next question is, do those goals match your spouse's goals? Uh, Are those different expectations in what you both hope to see out of this marriage? And maybe you've been married and you're no longer married, but you're hoping to be married again and you're looking for a spouse. Okay, well, what's your goal for that marriage? Are there things that you've dealt with from the previous marriage? Have you resolved those things? And do you have new goals for uh, what might be in front of you? And so I want to let that kind of sit there as you think about your marriage. What is the goal of it, because we're going to kind of give you three things that I think you could boil down a ton of marriage advice, and there's a lot of good things out there. This is certainly not an end-all, be-all on marriage, but I think there's three things that a passage of Scripture makes incredibly clear that if we could uh, master these three, or at least put great effort into these three, the amount of transformation that would take place in our relationship from just having three simple goals would just be incredible. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Ephesians And Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to pick it up. But what's happened, and this is important, what's happened in the previous uh, three chapters of Ephesians is Paul has begun to explain the gospel very clearly. And he says, this is what Jesus did at the cross. And because this is what Jesus did at the cross, here's what this means for your identity. And he talks about this identity in Christ, that I am not the old man that we just saw. I am a new creation in Christ. Now, because of that, in chapter 4, he starts to talk about how that changes the way we live. And he talks about living this life that's transformed because of what Jesus did at the cross. Well, then chapter five, he begins to talk about how the gospel ought to begin to affect our relationships. And so uh, he talks about marriage, but the whole concept is surrounded around the fact that Jesus went to the cross and died, was buried and rose again. And that changes everything, including the goals you set for uh, your marriage. Ephesians chapter five, verse 21. Let's go ahead and pick it up there this morning. Here's what it says. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to just, we're going to kind of walk through these uh, section at a time. And he opens up this whole idea by saying, listen, if you're going to have a, a God-focused marriage, you need to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he talks about this idea of mutual submission, that both the husband and the wife are to choose a posture of humility and deference to the other so that uh, Christ might be glorified in it. And we're going to kind of come back to this mutual submission idea, but I want to focus on uh, this idea of reverence for Christ. Reverence means this deep respect. Like, you know that feeling of like, I would never want to disappoint that person, right? Maybe you had that person in your mind that like, it would crush you to ever disappoint that person. Here's what he's saying. He says, your heart ought to be so motivated out of your deep respect for Christ that that affects how you treat each other. Really what he's doing here is he's setting up the motivation for your marriage, The reason you're married, the reason you're still married, the reason you should want to be married is because your heart is so moved by your life-giving relationship uh, with Jesus that you just can't help it. Which leads me to a question for you this morning is what motivates you in your marriage? Are you motivated in your marriage out of obligation and duty? Are you motivated in your marriage because it's easier culturally to stay married? 
Are you motivated in your marriage because of the benefits you're getting from it? Are you motivated by your marriage by joy and thanksgiving? Or are you motivated in your marriage because of what Christ did at the cross for you and that changes your whole perspective and how you approach it? And here's why this matters. The why of your marriage is what you anchor to when, when things get difficult. If your why is based on personal pleasure and personal gratification, when you hit bumps in the road and some of those things disappear, you all of a sudden lose your anchor point for why you're in this thing in the first place. Which is why flippant marriages, when they hit rocky, rocky waters, become so difficult to hang on to because from the beginning, they were set on personal gratification and what I get from the other person rather than I'm here because this is a symbol of what Christ has done for the church and how I ought to respond to that. And so the motivations of why we're in this is incredibly important. And I think um, very simply said, and this is my first uh, goal for us that I believe comes out of scripture here, is that the goal of your marriage would be to honor God. That if you were to, to stop and say, hey, the reason I am in this marriage is not so that I can have kids, so there's nothing wrong with that. It's not so that I can have a companion, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm in this because God has called me to be here to honor him in it that I would walk in a way that when people look in on my marriage, what they see is a picture, a small picture of how Jesus loves the church. That the way my spouse and I interact would represent to all of my non-Christian friends that we have a God who loves us unconditionally. Why? Because they see me loving my spouse unconditionally. And so uh, what does that look like, though? Like, how do you honor God in your marriage? Well, I have a couple of questions that I think may help you kind of determine where you're at. In that. Here's the first one. Do I treat my wife in a way that honors her worth and value? You see, Jesus thought she was worth going to the cross to die for. Do the way you treat her reflect that sense of worth and value? Here's the next one. Do you speak to your husband with words that Christ would speak to him? When you're talking to him, are you cutting? Are you sharp? Are you vindictive? Or are you truthful? Are you grace-filled? Are you speaking necessary words? Are you confronting gently? The words we speak represent that. Here's the third thing. How is my heart attitude towards serving my spouse? See, here's the kind of annoying thing about having a marriage that honors God. Like, if you don't care about God in your marriage, you can just kind of do your responsibilities and obligations, and it's whatever. But when you do those duties and responsibilities and obligations with a rotten heart, it doesn't honor God, and it's not a win, and it doesn't honor your spouse. See, this is something my wife had to confront me on multiple times when we got married, that I would do what she asked me to do, right? I'd take the trash out, I'd do whatever, and, but I looked like a six-foot-one toddler who just got told he had to go clean his room, right? Fine, I'll go do it, right? And she had to say, you know, listen, that doesn't honor me. Like, so what? You're taking the trash out, but that doesn't honor me because I can tell your heart wasn't in this. You weren't choosing out of joy to serve me. Here's the fourth thing. How do I act when my spouse isn't around? This one's big. Because if I recognize that my heart, my thoughts, my behaviors in my marriage ought to be something that honors God, then how I talk about my spouse when she's not in the room has a lot to say about how I'm honoring God. How I interact with somebody of the opposite sex or conversations I'm having says a lot about how I'm choosing to honor God in that relationship. It's not just about when they're around, but when they're apart. Now you have motivation beyond just your fear of repercussions. But you have motivation because this is what God has called me to do in this relationship. 
have a little competition I want to give to all of our married people in here. And if you're not married, you can do this with your friends too, but I want a little friendly competition. Uh, fun fact, actually, my wife and I um, got on our first date because I lost a competition to her around physical fitness. That's probably not a surprise to most of you, but she beat me, and uh, I let her beat me. I'm just kidding. She straight up beat me. It was bad. Um, <laughs> It's fine. I'm over it. Anyway, uh, here's my competition for you. I want you to take Romans chapter, chapter 12, verse 10, and I want you to begin to do this competition. I want you to outdo one another in showing honor. I want you to compete this week. Who can honor the other more? Like, no, 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 you first, honey. And they're probably going to gag because they haven't seen it in 10 years, all right? But, but what I want you to do is just say, how can I beat them in showing honor? And could I tell you, if you both competed wholeheartedly, the transformation that would take place in your marriage just in this one little thing as you began to choose deference of the other and the, the honoring of who they are, man, the, the, the radical things that would begin to change just from that alone. Paul's going to turn the page down. He's going to begin to say, okay, mutual submission to one another, motivated by honoring God. Here's what that looks like in the individual relationships. And he starts with the wives. Verse 22. He said, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church and his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And this is one of the more um, unpopular passages that I'm going to read in 2022, I think. Um, it, the, the submit word is the other S word you're not allowed to use in some homes, right? Like, I understand that. And listen, there's good reason for some of those knee-jerk reactions because, and I'm going to say this a couple times, I might get in trouble for it, but I'm going to say it anyway, weak men have used these verses to manipulate other people into being tolerant of their selfish behaviors. That is not what he is talking about here. And I'll show you why. He says this, wives, submit to your own husbands. What this passage does not say is all women submit to all men. That is not what this says. I was working um, overseas and I was working with a team and there was this 20-year-old girl on the team who was just getting bossed around by this other guy on the team. And I went up to her and I was like, her name was Georgia. I was like, Georgia, what's up? Why are you letting him treat you like that? Like, that's not okay. She goes, well... I'm a girl and he's a guy, so I have to. And I was like, wait, 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 sister. I don't know who has bewitched you, but that's just not true. Well, I'm supposed to submit. I said, no, no, no. You're supposed to submit to your husband, and that man is not your husband. And if he is your husband, you and I are going to have a conversation if you ever plan to make him your husband. I said, your only obligation to him is that he's a brother in Christ and you're to honor him as so. And right now, he's a crummy brother. So he and I are going to go have a brother-to-brother conversation, if you know what I'm talking about, right? So he's not talking about that there is this hierarchy of worth or value. What he's saying is if you are in a relationship and you are committed in marriage, that is when this begins to take place. It is not a gender conversation. It is a marital conversation. And then the next thing he says here is incredibly important. He says, as you do to the Lord. He says, you submit as you do to the Lord. Well, that means a couple things for us this morning. First, uh, it means what Paul is saying, and he's kind of saying this almost as an assumption. He's assuming all the wives that are hearing this are living in a place of surrender to Jesus. That as they examine their hearts, there's nothing that they're holding out against God. He has full reign. They are submitted to him as authority. They're submitted to him as the ultimate say in their life. They are living in repentance and confession. He says this almost as an assumption. 
says, listen, I know, wives, you're so godly that you're just, you're following the Lord perfectly. And so he says this really interesting statement is kind of understood in here that the health of your relationship is determined by the level in which you are walking with the Lord. And he says, wives, your goal, your, your objection or your um, objective, excuse me, is to walk in such communion with the Lord that you just have such a life-giving relationship. And he says, that's the way you are to follow your husband. Well, here's the other thing that is connotated in here. The Lord will never lead us to destruction. He will never lead us to sin. He will never lead us out of selfish gain. He will never lead us out of right living. He will never lead us to places that are unhelpful for us. And let's be honest, husbands, sometimes we do all five of those things in one afternoon, all right? Let's just be transparent this morning. Sometimes we screw it up. Sometimes we do uh, make decisions out of selfishness. Sometimes we do make decisions out of uh, just wrong places in our heart. Sometimes we do say things and ask things that are not what God would ask us to do because what? We are still in progress. And so it's really interesting here, and you have to catch this. He's saying, follow your husband as he follows the Lord. Because what's true of the Lord is he does lead us to uncomfortable places before our growth. He leads us with gentleness. He leads us beside still waters. He leads us to serve others. Do you, do you see the nuance in there? That the wife is supposed to follow her husband as he is following Christ. Now, when that is not true, when that is not true, when I am failing to lead well, it means something for my wife. It means she has to have her own walk with the Lord to be able to say, wait, 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 wait. Are you sure that's right? Are you sure that's where God would call you to go? Are you sure why? Because sometimes I miss it. Sometimes I just get it wrong. I want to make sure I'm not missing anything because this is incredibly important for us this morning. Yeah, okay. I knew I was going to miss something. I didn't want to miss that. Here's something really important for you to consider. Um, if he's leading you to sin, you have an obligation from the Lord to help stop him. If he's leading you into selfishness, you have an obligation of the Lord to love him well and say, I think that's wrong. If he's not letting you into financial decisions, something's probably wrong. If he's not letting you look at his phone, something's probably wrong. If he's not willing to receive wise counsel in his life, something's probably wrong. And if all of those are true, I want you to tell him to have conversations with men who are going to keep him honest. If he doesn't have those in his life, something is wrong. And some of you men are a little bit upset with me. That's okay. I love you enough to give your wives the truth. Why? Because we need people who are going to keep us honest. I married my wife because I knew she could do that. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I just wanted to make sure that we said that. What I believe Paul here is saying is that we're to lovingly help each other find our way back and, and be his cheerleader as often as you can. Here's the difficult thing. What if he's not a Christian? What do you do with that one? All right, well, 1 Peter actually tells us plainly, 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, wives, in the same way, submit to yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any one of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Verse 2. When they see their purity, see the purity and reverence of your lives. Paul says, listen, if you're, even if you're uh, a Christian married to a non-Christian, he says, your goal is the same that you would love them in such a way that they would see their waywardness, they would be blown away by the love and grace of Jesus and the truth that sets them free, and they would find hope in him. It's the same. It's a huge conversation. 
I'm sure you have a lot of questions about it. I'd love to talk uh, with you more about that in person. I don't have time to cover all of what that means uh, here this morning, but it goes for both husbands and wives. Let's see how Paul uh, turns the page on the men here in verse 25. Here's what he says. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He says, listen, before you think this is just her to submit, listen, uh, there's a call on your life and it's to love your wife just as Christ loved the church. And he says, oh yeah, just in case you forgot, he went and died for her. And so there's this really interesting thing that I think often the sermon kind of ends here with telling women these things, but, but really that's the easy stuff. It gets difficult as Paul begins to talk to the men. He says, listen, wives just to follow his lead as he follows Christ, but men... You have to get up and go die for your wife every single day. You know, he doesn't say that to the wives. He says it to the men. He says, men, go follow the Lord in submitting and surrendering yourself for her good. And, and I think as I talked about this with a bunch of people and I thought about it, like, we get that as men. Like, I don't know many men who wouldn't stand in front of an oncoming bullet for their wife, Right? Like, to the man, I think every one of us would say, no, no, I'll take the bullet. I'll, I'll step in. I'll protect. Like, even marriages that aren't great, like, there's something hardwired in men to do that. In the same way, it's hardwired uh, in women to be protective over their children. And so, um, as I was thinking about this, I thought, man, we really get this whole idea of taking the bullet. But there's this disconnect, maybe not in your heart, but there's this disconnect in my heart that says, okay, I know that, but, like, how do I do that with my emotions, how do I do that with my time? How do I give up myself and my desires in a way that surrenders myself for her good? There can kind of be this disconnect, right? Like I, I work hard and I, and I provide for the family. Isn't that enough? Like we applaud hard work. That's awesome. That is kind of a rare, uh, becoming a more rare thing lately. But that's not the only expectation God has put on us. Listen to what uh, Paul continues to say in verse 26. He says this, he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkles or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. He says it is our obligation as men to lead our wives in such a way that they um, find Jesus more easily. That they walk in response to Jesus, that we're to lead them to godliness. And I love the verse in here, the word in here, it says radiant. Radiant means to be shining, to be glowing, to be giving off light. And he literally says, men, love your wife so well that she's glowing. And you know what that looks like. You've seen it where your spouse comes around the corner and you're just radiating. But we've also all seen it on probably the other end of our screw-ups where they're not radiating. <laughs> It might be radiating, but it's not glowing. It's a whole different radiating, right? All right? And that's on you, probably. That's on you. That's on me. But he says, could you love them in such a way that they feel so filled up, so encouraged, so given over to the flourishing that God has called them to live in, that they're literally glowing? When I was in the dating phase, which I told you I did not do well um, before I found my wife, it became very apparent to me very quickly that I had to marry somebody with a strong personality, I dated a few people who uh, were kind of yes people, and what I discovered quickly is that I have an incredibly strong personality, and that may come as a shock to some of you. Others of you are like, yeah, no, duh, we knew that one, all right? Um, but very rarely do I second-guess a decision I make. If I've made up my mind, I've made up my mind. Like, I, I almost never second-guess a decision I make. It's so bad, actually, that I was 
for the first time in a long time, second-guessing a decision on whether to buy something, I went back and forth like five times, should I buy it or not? And she looked at me, she's like, what's wrong with you? I don't know. I don't know what this feels like to second-guess a decision, right? Like, it was, it was ironic. But it became really apparent to me that I needed somebody who was going to go toe-to-toe with me. I needed somebody whose personality and, and walk with the Lord was strong enough to say, that's false, and I'm calling you on it. Why? Because otherwise, I would have had an incredibly one-sided marriage where uh, I just did whatever I wanted, and I know myself well enough to know that's a terrible idea for me. I, I need somebody who has a strong walk with the Lord to say, you're being an idiot. Thank you. I know. Thank you. Help me get back there. But well, the interesting thing about our personalities is every marriage personality test said, don't get married. Um, they literally call this fire and ice. or like, this is a terrible idea. Uh, well, most of them don't take into account the Lord and all of that. But what's so interesting about my wife and, and her strong personality, and I've cleared this by her. She might have been asleep when I cleared it by her, but I cleared it by her. So her strong personality and mine, um, she loves and flourishes when I'm leading well. She doesn't have a problem following my lead when I'm following the Lord. Now, she has a problem following me when I'm not following the Lord as she ought to. But what's interesting is I, I can watch my wife flourish when I'm leading her well. But when she's having a hard time, this is why I'm getting through all this. When she's having a hard time following my lead, it's most often, 99% of the time, not on her, it's on me. Because I failed to lead well in that moment. Either I was presenting an idea and I didn't do it with grace. I was talking about a plan and I didn't uh, approach her in the right time. Like that's on me to lead her well. And it's so easy in these conflicts to begin to say, well, you just need to lead and you just need to follow. What role do you have in that? And you own 100% of that, both for her and on him. And when I'm leading well, it makes her role of following well and leading in her own capacity so much easier. And so, man, I'm going to get in your business a little bit. If she's not following you well, ask how you're leading. There it is. I'm sorry. You can, you can slash my tires later. Um, but I love you enough to speak truth to you because it's, it's something that people have had to say to me. Here, here's this idea that we see again, verse 21. This is what he's talking about, that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I need my wife to keep me honest, and I need her to help me be godly. And she needs me to help her be godly. It's mutual submission. If I were to kind of summarize all of what I just said, here's what I think our second goal for marriage ought to be, that we would die to self. What if you woke up every morning and said, how can I today die to my own wants and desires and serve another? And some of you are like, I do that every day. Awesome. How can you do that with a heart that honors the Lord? What if you woke up and said, not what do I want from life? How am I going to get what I want out of life? But you woke up and said, no, no, no. Today, how can I choose to give up what I want for the other person? And here's the crazy thing about how God designed marriage. If you both choose to do that, you both get all that you need out of it. If you both choose to surrender of yourself and give to the other, you're both filled up. What happens is when one chooses to do it and the other one doesn't. What goes really badly if both refuse, to begin, both refuse to die to themselves because nothing causes more conflict in your marriage than selfishness. Nothing causes more fights in my house than when I decide to be selfish and get what I want when I want it. Well, I have to choose to walk the way of Jesus. And it can be tiring, yes, but here's what is true. Sacrificial love has been set on our shoulders as expectation from God all the days of our life. There will not be a day where this is not what God has asked of us. 
There will not be a day where we graduate from giving up of ourselves for the good of another. There will not be a day where your marriage all of a sudden is like, oh, I don't have to do that anymore. No, no, it will be true for us for the rest of our life if we want to live a life that honors God. You know what I find so interesting about this whole idea of dying to self is like, you and I had no problem doing it when we were dating. Am I wrong? Like when you were pursuing them, when you were trying to get them to say you, they loved you for the first time, like I would get, I would drive 75, or I would work 75 plus hours a week. I'd get off work on Friday. I'd get in the car. I'd drive six, six and a half hours to see Olivia for 14 hours. I'd get back in the car. I'd drive through the night and I'd get up here and preach in the morning. I'd finish. I'd go back to work Monday at 5 a.m. That was a lot of work for 14 hours, and I did it gladly. And my car, they got 14 miles to the gallon. Now she asked me to get a glass of water after I sat down, not before I sat down. It's like she asked for a unicorn driving a Lamborghini, all right? Like, y'all know what I'm talking about. Don't judge me. You're like, when you were dating, you're like, oh, I'm going to cook him the best meals. Now you're like, yo, get McDonald's before you come home. I ain't cooking you nothing, right? Like, how do we get there? I was listening to some interns talk this week, and they're getting married this summer. And they're like, we are never going to do this. We are never going to do that. And I was like, (laughs) You have no idea. And then I was like, man, just a few years ago, I said those same things. What happened? Well, I think familiarity happens. But then I think we just, we just think, oh, we've got love. I don't need to show sacrificial love all the time. And it's this call of Christ to every day say, I will get up even though I just sat down. And I will get you whatever you need. I will serve you. I will give up me. And listen, ask my wife. She will be honest with you. I do not have this figured out, but it is a call that Christ has put before all of us that I'm aiming for. Here's the third and last thing that I think comes out of this passage, that we would be experts in forgiveness, not in each other's failures. That you would be an expert in forgiveness, not in each other's failures. Listen, um, if we were to play a little game this morning, and any of you that have been married more than five minutes, like you know all of your spouse's failures, all of their shortcomings, and they may not even be failures. They might just be like weird things that they do differently than you, right? Like how the Tupperware containers never have lids. Or, or how the Tupperware containers always uh, mysteriously disappear in the back of the car, ask where they are, say, I don't know, and then they just magically reappear with mold on the countertop after a week, and nobody knows how they got back on there, all right? Or the Q-tips covered in wax, cracked in half, left around the house, gross. The poopy diapers, not rolled up, splayed open on the floor. Those are fun to step in. Forget Legos, let's dodge poopy diapers. You know what I'm talking about. I'm going to let you decide which one of us is responsible for which one of those later. But we can become experts in the nitpicky failures of things, and that's easy. What takes real work is to stand up and say, I know you don't flush the toilet every time. I know you don't put the toilet seat down, yet I love you. I'm going to cheerlead you. What's even more difficult, and they're not dumb things like that, they're real hurts. They're real heartaches. The real failures on each end to be able to look that person in the eye and says, I know where you screwed up, it hurt me, and yet I choose to not be an expert in where you failed me, but in how Christ has forgiven me and I forgive you. That is what has the makings of an incredible marriage. When I do premarital counseling, I tell people all the time, you can have all the chemistry you want, and if you're terrible at forgiveness, you have no shot. The only shot your marriage has is if you are experts in forgiveness. Why? Because it is two sinners living under the same roof, 
roof consistently butting heads for the purpose of being made more like Jesus, which means things will come up. Gary Thomas, uh, he wrote the book Boundaries. He said, uh, I don't see that couples fall out of love. I see that they fall out of repentance. So what does it mean to live a life motivated by Christ, uh, honoring each other, dying to self? Well, I want you to consider how Christ loved the church, and maybe it would help you get a grid and me to get a grid for what this means. Here's what he did. He sacrificed before we were worth it. Jesus died before we deserved him to die for us. He died while we were still his enemies. While the conflict was still raging, he died. Let's pause right there. I have some more. Do you, do you see the example that has been set for each one of us? The conflict's still going on. You're still arguing about the cup of water. Real truth. I was trying to write this sermon. We started to argue about a cup of water. I've never argued about a cup of water in my life before. Apparently, it was worth it in the middle of writing this sermon, right? In the middle of that moment, how do you go, Jesus died while the conflict was still raging? How do I die to myself right now? What does that look like? Because I'm supposed to live a life that reflects the cross. Let's keep reading. He knew every failure every shortcoming, and every screw-up, yet he still chose us. We betrayed him when we chose sin, yet he sacrificed with no promise of reciprocity. This one's huge. We rebelled against him. He ran after us, having no guarantee that we would ever say sorry, no guarantee that we would ever fix it. It's a model and a pattern that's been set for us. He promised his love, but left our response up to us. He didn't demand. He offered love, unconditional love, and said, would you respond? If I were to summarize all of that, I would, I would say this. Your sacrifice, going through this up there, your sacrifice for your spouse is not determined by their worthiness in that moment. It is determined by the cross. Your sacrifice for your spouse is not determined by their worthiness in that moment because sometimes it doesn't feel worth it. But when I look at the cross, I know that God died for them. I know he died for me. That is my motivation in that moment. So what do you do with this? Where do you go from here? Here's my challenge for you. I want, to, I want you to pick one of the three, and I want you to begin to work on them. Maybe you need to work on honoring uh, the other and honoring uh, the Lord in that. Maybe it's your thought life. Maybe it's your attitudes. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe you need to die to yourself. You need to ask your spouse the question this week. How can I serve you better? What can I do to help you? How can I make your life easier? Uh, wh what is it? Just ask the question and be ready to hear what they have to say about it. And the third one is maybe there's some unforgiveness that's been um, really anchoring itself in the way of the love that God has designed for you. Maybe it's time that you both walk back to the cross and begin to work through both individually and collectively what that means. Can I tell you, nothing screams of the goodness of the cross of Jesus Christ like a marriage that is restored. Nothing says louder about the love of the redeeming love of God like two people who have real problems against each other saying we choose to forgive and release and be restored because that is what Christ did for us. Here's the third thing. I want everybody in here I'm going to throw the link up on Facebook. I want everybody in here, if you're married or you intend to be married, I want you to buy this book. I don't get any money for this. I didn't write this, so, which means it's worth reading because I didn't write it. 
book called Marriage. Very, very awesome title there. Just marriage. Six gospel commitments every couple needs to make. Paul David Chip. It'll be on the website later. I, I, I cannot tell you the amount of transformation that would take place if the two of you in your relationship or even before you got into a relationship committed to read this and understand this and begin to apply this. And maybe you even want to invite some other couples in with you as you talk through this. Church, I, I cannot tell you the amount of havoc that has been re- wrecked on marriages over the last two years. In my 10 years of ministry, I have never seen more uh, marital fallout uh, than I have in the last couple of years. And I'm, I'm up here today with a little bit of fire in my belly because I want us to take this seriously. I, I want us to run to the cross because it is not playtime. Our kids need us to do the work that we need to do. Our, our community needs us to do the work in our marriages. The world needs the, the body of Christ to take marriage seriously. Why? Because it is the biggest picture of what Jesus has done. And so forgive me if I was a little in your face today. I, I love you. I'm for you. And I want you to take hold of the marriage that Christ died for you to take hold of. Let's pray. Dearly, Father, we love you. And I know that as I stand up here today, an imperfect man, I'm overwhelmed by your grace that you chose us, that you loved us. God, I pray that you would put um, even an ounce of that love inside of our hearts for the other. Jesus, we need you to do this. We, we don't have what it takes on our own. Uh, We grow weary, we can do our best, we can grit our teeth, but that's not what we need. What we need is our hearts to be transformed by you and that our marriages would be transformed by the love of Jesus. We know that you can do this. We ask that you would do this. We pray that we would invite people into our lives who would speak truth, that we invite people into our lives who are gonna keep us honest, God. We need you today. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name.